Welcome to Piecing It All Together. I'm Randy Woodley. I'm Bo Sanders. We're here to piece it together with you today. Randy, I am excited because we got a little rain recently. Oh, man. Believe me, as a farmer, you can't know how anxious we have been. We we were supposed to get a whole bunch of rain, but actually where I'm at in Yamhill, we only got one good day of rains. But, but you know, hey, I'll take it. One good day is better than none. I think you told us on the last episode that it was the driest April in record. Yep. That's right. And, you know, that that messes things up. Even if you end up with enough rain, it's the way that the rain comes that really messes things up. So, you know, it stunts growth uh, and uh, it just uh, creates a low aquifer. And yeah. then the aquifer has trouble recovering. It's just, you know, kind of things that normally come in a particular season don't really know quite what to do and they have to adapt. And so it puts a stress on just the whole, you know, world of flora out there, including our crops and the yeah. things that we're raising. Yeah. Now you have a shirt on today that says water is life. And is it ever mm-hmm. you go three days without it and tell me if you believe that slogan. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's even more apparent when I watch our plants yeah. and what happens to them, how they languish without proper watering. Um, everything out there, everything is made to depend on water. Yeah. And uh, so it, we protect it. It's a, it's a resource. We, we save the water off of our roofs um, and direct them to particular places. We use drip irrigation on uh, probably uh, 75% of what we grow, uh, maybe more. Um, so all of this in an effort to, you know, preserve water because it's so important. Wow. Uh, a couple of years ago, I learned from you uh, water can also be called first medicine. And I've really adopted that as my uh, approach. And um, I use it as a, a major uh, priority for me as a part of being healthy is my relationship to water. And so I yeah. really, I really have adopted that from from that insight that you gave. Yeah. I, you know, to me, one of the world's greatest mistakes is to try and commodify water. Mm. You know, everybody and everything needs it. So it should be, um, you know, available and free uh, to every person on the planet and every animal on the planet and every, but we're losing so many of our wetlands uh, due to development. We're, we're losing, uh, the the free flow of rivers and the um, uh, how that affects the environment uh, when we put up more and more dams, you know, and, and that's because of big agriculture. Mm-hmm. Big agriculture wastes so much water. Oh, my gosh. 70% of the water used in the United States is by big agriculture. Um, 20% is by the corporate uh, industrial use and only 10% by residential. And while, you know, it's wonderful to, for all of us who are just, you know, like people who just live in houses to save water and buy, you know, uh, small flush toilets and all those kinds of things, uh, you know, important to have the, the right shower heads and all those things. And, and they do help. And, and more than anything, I think it gives us a conscience and it gives us a uh, ability to think about our water when we do those kinds of things. 
But, um, you know, if we don't get a hold of this big agriculture uh, and stop the use of it, um, you know, the abuse of it, I mean, you can go through um, anywhere where they're doing what we call dry farming, right, which is most of the United States. Okay. And you'll see these giant sprinklers on and they'll be on whether it's rain or shine. It can be pouring down rain and they're still sprinklers on. The other thing is you can see these leaks. And these leaks are probably the equivalent to, you know, 10, 20 houses in a year's use of water that they, they use in a day. And uh, it's really a crime. Uh, it's nothing less than a crime to allow people to waste water in this way. Because here's the thing. Um, it takes a whole lot of water to make food. Okay. And when there's going to be a water shortage, guess what? There's going to be a food shortage. And so people are going to starve. And, you know, I don't know why our, uh, well, I actually do know why, but, um, you know, our society acts like or pretends like they don't see that coming. We do see that coming. It's just that such everything is such a short term fix. So, uh, you know, we've got to get a hold of um, big agriculture. Um, basically, that whole system has to be uh, completely uh, rebuilt. So, yeah, interesting. You know, I'm always learning new stuff about this. And I I didn't realize that almonds, the nut to grow almonds requires, I can't even remember this, some, this number uh, of the amount of water it takes to grow an almond. Right. And I was just shocked by it because and this is how dumb I can be. I was like, wait a minute, but almonds, they're like really dry. Like if you had told me cashews, <laughs> I would have thought like, <laughs> oh, I guess so. But I don't understand like the whole thing. And every time I learn something new about agriculture and about water, I'm always shocked. And almonds grow basically in the desert. I mean, uh, they grow in places like uh, Temecula, California, right? Um, and uh, and so and if you're using drip irrigation, right, and being water-wise, you can probably still get away with that. But think about how much is evaporating um, in a in a desert situation um, or semi-desert situation, arid anyway. Yeah. Um, and I know down there, um, uh, the uh, the problem, one of the problems they have with almonds is they call them almonds. <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah, because you know when they when they harvest these almonds, uh, which are almonds, before they they sh- they have a machine that just shakes them out. It gets and it it shakes the L out of them, and so they become almonds. <laughs> wow! Oh wow! <laughs> Throwing a little humor. We're getting a little serious yeah, here. That was a little right off the bat. We went deep. We went deep right off the bat. Jump, jumped into the deep end of the pool, pun intended. Uh, in the second half of our episode today, we're going to talk about recovery programs for uh, whiteness and white supremacy. But I did want to ask you uh, about the Ecumenical Ministries of Oregon. You and Edith are um, Ecumenists of the Year. You got the award, but I saw that you did, uh, I don't know if it was a seminar or webinar. You did something with them uh, recently. How did it go? I did recently a uh, a seminar with uh, a, a number of groups, I think, sponsored by Sojourners and Evangelicals for Justice and uh, Christians for Social Action and things like that. 
on white national, um, um, what's it called? Uh, um, Christian nationalism, basically. Okay. Uh, so white Christian nationalism. What we oh. did it was Sung Chan Ra, Lisa Sharon Harper, and myself, Daniel Hill. Um, we recently did uh, that webinar. Okay. Uh, and then there was a banquet held a couple nights ago by the Ecumenical Ministries of Oregon, in which we were presented a uh, the Ecumenist of the Year Award, Edith and I. Um, they came out to our place and interviewed us. And so there was a little interview there and then um, talked about Ayla Hay a bit. And then I was able to uh, end the program with a 10 minute, uh, uh, I guess you call it a speech or sermonette or whatever you want to say about hope. Uh, the theme was light in the tunnel. Yeah. And, uh, and so, yeah, so both of those things are on uh, um, available on uh YouTube. Uh, we can post those in the show notes if you sure. want. And yeah, I can make I'll, sure you have the link. Yeah, I'll put the listener. I'll put the link in the show notes if you want to follow up on that. And I'll watch. Uh, I did. I did see the uh, hope uh, one, but I'll find that other one too. I, I guess I. I was probably out in the woods when that happened. I didn't even see that one. Yeah, Christian nationalism. Um, and uh, I can yeah give you the link on that one too. That. Um, so it was Daniel Hill, then Sung Chan Ra, then myself, and then Lisa Sharon Harper. And I got to tell you, Lisa hit it out of the park. Yeah. It was incredible. So even if you skip the the three guys, which is okay, yeah. uh, and you get to Lisa, it was it was incredible. She did a great job. She is a powerful speaker. She really, her presentations are really powerful. Well, and her, her bottom line was, what do white Christian nationalists want? They want two things. Really one thing, but two things. One, they want exclusive white space. Space that's just for whiteness, space that's just for them. And they want exclusive white rules to enforce that space. Oh, no. It, it was powerful. Holy cats. You know, Randy, to take off of that for a second, I recently uh, was brought in to something. I'll leave out most of the details, but uh, a very interesting process that I got invited into about um, helping uh, largely white congregations adjust to having a pastor of color. And one Ooh. of the, th <laughs> I saw you perk up there. Ooh. Um, yeah, I've, I've been in that kind of a, I've seen that kind of a situation from the inside out. <laughs> so from the inside, yeah. And one of the things that is intriguing to me is that how well-meaning the white people are in the process, but how all of the procedures about committee work and legislation and bylaws and paragraphs in the discipline are all framed inside what you're talking about, um, white procedure, right? This, right. Because the power, yeah, the, the power is in the procedure. The power is in the process. So, so everyone needs to remember that when they're dealing with systems, that the power is in the process. If, 
uh, however you set the rules up, however you set the you, you achieve the process is if it's set up by white folks and then people of color are invited in and we've been a part of that kind of a system so many times I can't even tell you, then it's an automatic win for white folks and a loss for people of color automatically. Wow. Okay. That seems, uh, you seem very confident, <laughs> sure that that process won't bring about the desired result. It won't. So at, you you recall uh, probably I say this to every one of my classes at some point um, that that if you introduce the same DNA you're going to get the same children mm. with the same mixture of DNA. The only way to enter that uh, a parent can uh, have a different DNA in a child is to introduce a new parent. And uh, if it starts with white folks making the rules, you're going to end up with a white supremacist system in the end. It might be a kinder, gentler looking kind of uh, white supremacy, but that's what you're going to end up with. So you have to have people of color and never one, right? Never one person of color, Mm. because at that point, you, the person of color either becomes um, the token they acquiesce and become the token. They agree to whatever's being said and just offer a little bit of perspective and, or they become the scapegoat like, Oh, what's wrong with this person? Why do they always disagree? You know, why do they have to always talk about racism? Why do they, you know, and, and so you have to have at least, at least at minimum, two people of color who represent their communities. Well, who understand what's going on, uh, who can support one another and become uh, a united front, hopefully, in, in these kinds of issues. Uh, otherwise, um, it's it's probably doomed for failure. And I, I'd go as far to say it's always doomed for failure, but I know some people disagree with me. But this has been my experience, you know, for, you know, for these uh, 35, 40 years that I've been dealing with these kinds of things. Wow. So... Do you think that a commission of seven well-meaning white people can help a congregation of around, let's say, 50 uh, white folks uh, adjust to having a pastor of color? No, can't be done. Mm. They can't see their own blind spots. They can't see, you know, I mean... It's the old, uh, you know, does a fish realize it's swimming in water kind of a thing? Not until you take it out of water. Until white folks get uncomfortable uh, with what they always understand as white privilege without even thinking about it, as white normalcy without even thinking about it, until they are that is disturbed, until that system is disturbed, they can't understand what the problem is. Mm. Let me bring up a secondary question then. But if you have only a small number of people of color from which to draw to put on the commission, then you're using the same people of color on all of your committees. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe you need to just like get rid of a bunch of committees and form one committee over all the committees until you get more people of color because you know it's kind of like being a pack mule right 
there's all the horses and there's the mule, right? And, and uh, uh, not, I'm not saying mule in any disparaging way. I think mules are great. Yeah. But, you know, it's like, well, they're, they're, they're used to carrying this stuff on their shoulder. So we can just ask them, you know, continually to take all the burden and all the load. Well, you know, people get tired. Uh, so, you know, uh, you, 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 it's unfair to do that, but it's even more unfair for you to make the decisions without them. It becomes difficult in the early stages of diversifying leadership racially. It becomes difficult when you only have a limited number of racially diverse people to draw from because ultimately they get so many extra assignments besides whatever their say job is mm-hmm. that the the burden on them to always be the voice on any committee or whatever um, becomes overwhelming and it it's uh, exhausting you realize who you're talking to right <laughs> this is my life wow but as more and more people of color um um black indigenous other people of color um are available you know sometimes they just have to break down and say okay we're gonna we're gonna um go outside of our own small realm and we're gonna by proxy um, find some people who, you know, we could give a stipend to, uh, who will come in, you know, once a month or twice a month or whatever, and help us through this process. Um, you can find people in your own organization or your own denomination or whatever. Uh, you can't expect all these people to do this, you know, just for free because they're having to do that already, probably in a number of other places. So, so you need to reward them. You need to make it worth their while. Um, and you need to be able to listen to them. Power rests within the whiteness of the group. The group is never going to change. So what does that mean? Well, maybe that person of color needs to be the chair if there's, that's the position of that group. Yeah. You know? So if we're talking about racism, yeah. white people are not the experts. Okay. And that's a difficult thing for some white folks to understand is that their expertise does not include being discriminated against, Mm. being seen as a danger, being watched in the stores when you enter, being uh, uh, walking down the street and have people uh, move to the other side of the road or off the sidewalk because they're afraid of you, you know, um, uh, 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 being assumed to be ignorant because of the color of your skin or your tribal affiliation or whatever else. They are not the experts in this. White folks aren't. And so if you're going to ask experts to help you, mm-hmm. you need to make it worth their while. Okay. Wow. Hey, while we're talking about this, you texted me uh, an idea you had about a recovery, about the need for a recovery program of some type for issues of white supremacy. You- right. So, so what happens with a group of white folks when they get together, right? White normalcy is already assumed. White privilege is already assumed without anybody even realizing it. It's just there. 
It exists because the country has been created that way and society has accepted it that way. At least white society has accepted it that way. And so, so now the group is empowered in a particular way and a particular slant. So what you have to do also, and I'm usually much more about groups, and I think that can come later when you talk about system dynamics in a group, but uh, you have to actually isolate people um, to the, where they're individuals sharing their own experiences so that they can make those individual transformations and then bring that into the group. And then you also can deal with the group system dynamics uh, as well. But people, and basically what I'm saying is why people have to deal with their own stuff. Mm. Um, they, you know, and so a 12 step recovery group or however many steps, you know, somebody wants to create, uh, is a perfect kind of a model for that to happen. It's like, you know, uh, my name is such and such, and I'm a recovering racist from white supremacy. And until people begin to own that themselves individually, even if they have the right motives, when they get in that group of white folks, it's going to, they're going to empower that white normalcy. So you almost have to think about it as uh, an entity or a, a spirit uh, that exists on its own apart from the individual components of a group that it is, whether you call it like a connection or an umbrella or a separate entity, that it exists almost with a life of its of its own. And even- Absolutely. If, yeah, and even if the well-meaning white people Uh, are interacting in the group in good ways, in the end, they're still fueling this other thing. Absolutely. Without even without their knowledge. So, so they are carrying a disease within them that they don't realize they have. And it's called white supremacy. And so um, how do you deal with that disease? You have to begin first, you admit that you have it, right? Um, and that's uh, and then you start working on like the steps to to get rid of it. Yeah. Uh, and then you bring that awareness to other people. So um, who have the disease. So I think AA is a, a great model that's uh, sort of taught us how this thing can work. Mm. Um, yeah. Interesting. I actually took time to look up the 12 steps. Uh, you know, I, I didn't know all 12 uh, off the top of my head. But, you know, just that first one, we admit we're powerless over this and that our lives have become unmanageable. Yeah. That's the first step. Yeah. I mean, uh, people always want to know, well, what what do I do next? What do I read? What do I, you know? Okay. Well, those are all great questions, but you're not going to fix this until you start actually confessing it, confessing your white supremacy in front of a bunch of other white people, you know, White folks love to go to people of color and confess this stuff because it somehow they revel in the guilt of it. I don't know what's really going on there, but, but to admit it, you know, you know, when you go in an AA meeting or an NA meeting or some other kind of, uh, you know, a meeting like that, you know, everybody's got your number because they've been there, right? Mm. Some are higher places than others. Some, and you need mentors or, you know, sponsors, um, there's a whole sort of system of how this could work, but, um, uh, you know, you have to be able to go into a place where they're going to hold you accountable and, and be honest and allow you to share where you're at, you know? Mm. 
when you talked about the ecumenical ministries of Oregon, I know that they gave a theme about hope. It was it hope at the end of the tunnel. Is that what it was called? It's called, it comes from an Ellie Wiesel. Uh, oh yeah. Quote where he talks about being in Auschwitz. Yeah. And uh, I've heard Ellie Wiesel speak by the way. It was wonderful, but um, yeah. Um, and uh, um, I think, that statement probably uh, means less now than it used to back before we had, you know, YouTube and uh, everything else, you know, Vimeo. And, um, uh, but I heard him speak in person uh, back in the eighties. <laughs> huh. um, and um, yeah, he talks about that. Um, uh, you know, you always talk about there's light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. Well, what if there's no light, right? What if the whole tunnel is dark? Okay. So in Auschwitz, the whole tunnel was dark. And acts of generosity, acts of kindness were their light in the tunnel. And so, you know, my theme of what I was talking about was that of actionable hope, that hope is something you actually do, that you put legs on and hands to and, you know, uh, and and that's how hope happens. So, wow. Well, the reason I'm glad I asked, that was actually a really interesting side trail. The reason I had asked is uh, one of my favorite philosophers is Zizek. And he, to paraphrase him, he has a saying, be careful that the light at the end of the tunnel isn't another oncoming train. Yeah. And uh, white supremacy and even all of these book groups about white fragility and other things. I am nervous that what we think is light at the end of the tunnel, which is white people educating themselves on white fragility that the light at the end of the tunnel is actually another oncoming train, which is the reinforcement of the very system. Yeah. How do you see that happening? Because, you know, um, uh, I I don't know, it was probably uh, six, eight months ago that you were saying, you know, I educate uh, our people so that, you know, you don't have to. And I said, no, I don't want you. I don't want white people educating other uh, white people necessarily without, you know, people of color being there. Right. So um, uh, so that you can be held uh, accountable. So. but how do, how do you see that happening? I, I'm just wondering when you see this uh, light at the end of the tunnel, maybe it's an oncoming train. Can you think of how that might happen? Yes. But first of all, that was the worst impression of me. <laughs> Whatever that voice you used, I'm, I won't take it personally. Oh, <laughs> well, I wasn't trying to imitate you. I was just trying to remember what you said. Maybe I embodied that a little bit. <laughs> that was funny. That was a very interesting conversation because in that moment of uh, everybody getting woke and Black Lives Matter and the George Floyd protests, there was a lot of people who were uh, newly initiated to the fact that there is a problem and it gets named different things, right? Uh, And so books like How to Be Anti-Racist and White Fragility, and they were very popular and people had questions. And so... uh, you and several other people that I really respect and listen to and take direction from as a temporary measure, I felt comfortable being a, a safe quote unquote, uh, white ally for newly awakened people to ask questions to, but I did not realize so many people actually listened to our podcast 
until that episode when you said, wait, but the goal is for them to listen to people of color, voices of color. And that was referenced to me by enough people that I was like, I didn't even realize you listened to the podcast. I, I actually found out that a lot of people listen to it that I never even knew. Um, that was I a keep weird. being surprised by that too. Yeah. It's <laughs> so that was crazy. I just kind of think it's me and you talking, but there's, right, right. there's Which actually some people listening. Yeah. Well, I absolutely love it. But I think that that challenge slash correction, um, it impacted me. And I, so I stopped making that whole series of YouTube videos that I had been making. I brought it to a close and I haven't made any, I haven't done anything new since that conversation. I don't think I've put out anything in six months so that voices of color and, and platforms uh, that empower uh, thinkers of color, that people could find those. I just wanted to become a resource to send them on. And um, so I, I took that seriously, but I constantly find myself uh, asking the question, what do we do with all of these book groups that formed last year, you know, in COVID, in isolation, in quarantine, uh, of people who, quote unquote, started to do their anti-racist work now that we're coming, we're vaccinated and we're coming out and we're like returning to life as normal, how do we put legs on that work? I keep using air quotes that listeners can't see, but how do we take that work that people did and actually harness it for activism and change? And I don't have the answer to that. And that's why I'm yeah. afraid, that's why I'm afraid that woke white people could be another oncoming train, not the light at the end of the tunnel. They could be another oncoming train. It's so obvious to people of color. It's like the question that in, in my wife and I have been asking this for 30 years and what we over 30 years that we've been doing together. It's like, um, this is a, a case of white people trying to solve their white problems, right? Sure. Instead of empowering the quote unquote experts who can actually teach them. And so we've been asking for 31 years, you know, why don't, you know, you folks like empower us to do what we're already doing and we've been doing. But the truth is, is that white folks want to solve their own problems and they don't trust people of color to solve the problem. And so they don't empower them. And this isn't just uh, my wife and I, this is like, you just name it throughout. Most people of color struggle. Anybody who's trying to do anything independently struggle financially. They struggle with resources. They struggle with labor. They struggle with all of these things because, um, and, and you'll, what you get is you'll get white people, well-meaning white folks, who will start doing something similar, and then you know they'll some people will support that because white folks love to support white projects. Um, rather than saying, "Hey, let's just like empower them for a while to do this stuff and help them get the things done," and uh, and then you know we can sort of learn from them as we go. So you know it used to uh, when I was. Um, 
when we were uh, doing work among our native communities, serving in different ways, I can't tell you how many people would come to me and say, I have this message from God. And, you know, kind of like the Blues Brother, right? Uh, we have this uh, message from God. And, you know, I'm supposed to go to the reservation and start a ministry and blah, 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 and close my business and do, you know. And, and so then, you know, instead of saying, hey, there's lots of Native folks who are doing similar work, who know what they're doing, who are already, you know, partially, at least partially in the community, and they have an in, they have an entrance. And why not just support the people who are experts at it already, right? Yeah. But no. Very rarely do we ever see that happen. And so, you know, um, you know, I've, I've never had anybody say, I've been called by God to uh, close my business and get another job and, and give all the resources to you folks who are doing the work that I want to do. <laughs> never. <laughs> mm, suspicious. Somehow this harkens back to Jesus and the rich young ruler. You know, I don't know. Uh, mm. It's like, what, what do white folks need to be to do to be saved from their own racism? Sell everything and give it to the people of color who have been oppressed. That's what the churches need to do. That's what individuals need to do. Maybe they don't need to sell everything, right? But it, it's just, it's such a tall order for white folks to get on board and support Native people or uh, African-American people or Latinx people or Asian people. It's, it's uh, you know, or you name it. Um, it's sort of like if it's not white normal, you know, then uh, they get the scraps. And I'm, I'm sorry to have to bring that downer message. But, you know, after over 30 years of watching this happen, this is just I can speak for a lot of people of color. Yeah. This is the way it is. Well, listener, we are going to wrap up this episode for time purposes, but obviously this is going to be an ongoing conversation. So we would love to hear from you about your thoughts on recovery programs and what that might look like. Or Love to see those 12 steps if anybody wants to take a stab at uh, putting the 12 steps together. Yeah, if somebody knows the 12 steps better than, uh, than I do, if you're familiar with that, if that's a part of your experience, we'd love to hear your perspective on that. And uh, also, we'd love to hear what you are nervous about the light at the end of the tunnel being an oncoming train. How did that sit with you? I would, I would love to hear some feedback on that. We want to thank our Patreon supporters. We couldn't do this without you. We're so grateful for your financial support. So if you'd like to support us on Patreon, it is piecing it all together, P-E-A-C. And I'll link to that in the show notes. You can also reach out to us. You can comment on the Facebook post, but you can email us at connect at piecingitalltogether.com. Thank you for listening. And please share this with anyone you think might be provoked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and just remember you know i love you all <laughs>